in a lot of tweets about the Medicaid purge that I've seen, um, one of the things that I think is really funny is the response is like, wow, this is a very terrifying prospect and we need to we do need further more study. studies. Yeah. Oh, oh no, really? That's a, First of all, like this is entering the discourse. And second of all, why is that like that used to be a joke? I mean, I think right. that still is a joke. That's like it's in a Michelin web sketch. Like we need to do studies to seeing if like killing all the poor will like improve the GNP. Like this is like wow, amazing. Hey, you know, this jokes so come good. from somewhere. <laughs> See, it's first as far as then as tragedy. No, 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 I- I- incorrect. First as far as, then as tragedy, and then as a private Reboot. contractor scheme for social scientists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welcome to the Death Panel. Become a patron to get access to our weekly Monday bonus episode and all of our patron exclusive back catalog. There's over 100 episodes uh, that are extra in addition to the free one like this one that comes out every Thursday. So head to patreon.com slash deathpanelpod if you want to support the show and get access to all that bonus content. And if you'd like to give us a little extra boost, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, and follow us on social media at deathpanel.com underscore. So this week saw the canonization of economist and pandemic school reopening data queen, Emily Oster, (laughs) in a glowing, glowing New York Times profile that emitted the truly substantial problems with her work. So we're going to get into that article and do our own sort of death panel inverse profile of Oster. Yeah, that's a more accurate portrait of her work, life and influence. Yeah, we're going to cover some of the things that have been missing and some of the which, things that which, in fact we've never taken the time to gonna, discuss which is weird because there's I was so gonna say, much we could just cl- do a clip like, show but actually right. no uh, there's yet the, it's like it's like there's something something like ginzu knives and yet there's more yeah exactly there's there's always more um and I, actually i think in some ways we've saved some of the best treasures for this uh conversation because in the midst of so much of the heated arguments over things like school uh, reopenings and and things like that and and trying to like set the record straight on some of the specific claims, big claims that were being made by Oster and her ilk in the moment. I think we had to focus so much on that. And I I don't know that we've ever given such a profile treatment. And there's so much flavor there. Which is really important. Yeah. Yeah, So we're going to get into that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first... Now that the cultural production of the idea of the pandemic being over in the U.S. is pretty cemented in the popular imaginary, one of the few remaining procedural formalities is to officially call the end of the federal emergency. And it's key because ending the state of emergency formally is going to trigger some really cataclysmic changes in social supports like Uh, You've probably heard a lot of people talking about the real big issue with ending the pandemic state of emergency and what that's going to trigger in terms of an an eviction crisis. But Mm -hmm. we want to focus today on 
one program in particular, which this week was being discussed amidst wide reports of absolutely unprecedented increases in enrollment during the pandemic, which is Medicaid. Right. Which ma- massive increases in enrollment. Massive. The, the number came out that came out this week is that um, over 80 million people are on Medicaid now, which is one in four people. Yeah. I mean, that. Le- right. Ju- I mean. And obviously, there's there's a lot to say about that. A lot of people actually like social scientists and things I've seen have been kind of in a way like celebrating that number because it shows that when you lift these administrative burdens on uh, Medicaid enrollment, which is you know part of the reason for this number is that like during the pandemic, because of the state of emergency, part of the uh, things that were changed for the few things that Congress actually did was, you know, we're, we're as a condition of giving a little bit of extra money to state Medicaid programs, you know, you're not going to be able to churn uh, Medicaid recipients off at the the way that you usually do you can't kick as many people off of the rolls and so you know more people were able to not just enroll in medicaid but stay on medicaid but all of this you know and it's true that like the reduction of administrative burdens is a very important part of it but i think that you know once you take out some of these like paperwork requirements and like uh remove some of the hoops of actually being able to stay on this program from it i think the real question becomes how is it not like an existential fucking problem in the united states that one in four people are on this program for very low income people. Yeah, and and it was a basically from February 2020 to now there was a 15% increase in enrollment and one thing that's no, that's pretty significant is that normally the the single largest block of insurance is Medicare recipients. So right. Medicaid and CHIP combined, though mostly Medicaid, have surpassed Medicare and is now the largest single block of insured recipients. Which is just wild. Right. Right. But of course, you know, it's important to keep in mind that many states have privatized Medicaid programs where they pass through money and work with private insurance companies. So this is not um, this is not just sort of like, oh, great, everybody's on this sort of stable insurance through, you know, the past couple decades. You've had this explosion of privatization. And, and what we talk about all the time is all the very awful, awful ways that Medicaid is designed to be really punitive, exclusionary. And all of that has been paused for two years. So when the pandemic state of emergency ends, that pause on those things that, um, you know, normally kick off 25 percent of applicants uh, on a rolling basis, all of a sudden, like constantly they're evaluating all these states who have horrific approaches to doing Medicaid are going to all at once in January of 2022 have to evaluate a huge group of people. So it's like you take this awful process that normally happens on a rolling basis, but now it happens all at once. Yeah, right. And no, and I think that this relates to like a larger debate about what the pandemic policy changes meant. And, And I think it's sort of like a latent debate, but I think it's there. I think there are some people who are sort of arguing, usually implicitly, that like the the size and scale of the uh, federal government's response to the pandemic was like you know much larger than it was to the Great Recession, and that like we can conclude from this, you know, especially perhaps the Medicaid, that like this this is like potentially like the death of neoliberalism, and I just like want to say that I disagree with that like fundamentally and you can see why I think it's reasonable to disagree with that when you look at actually what happened with Medicaid okay so like you saw this huge increase 
in enrollment, right? Uh, you know, a, a kind of unprecedented increase in enrollment. Um, but and, and like, what is that related to? Okay. Well, on the one hand, it's related to these temporary um, uh, measures that uh, you guys were just talking about, where you you know we're just like deferring some of the the most egregious like administrative burdens. We put some maintenance of effort requirements where states it makes it harder for states to like kick people off or and do things right. like work requirements. Um, but the other part of it um, is this enhanced um, matching rate that the federal government gave to the states. Now, all of that. All of that goes away whenever the public health emergency is declared over, right? And that could be, um, like, let's just say January of this coming year. Right. Now, um, the other thing to note about what happened and, like, these these coverage increases is that it wasn't uniform across the country. And actually, if you go in and look at the relationship between, like, ideally, if, if I don't know, if maybe... This is like a low bar, but like maybe if neoliberalism was ending, you would see greater <laughs> Medicaid enrollment where there were greater levels of unemployment. Right. Maybe right, like yeah. we would finally realize it was a, you know, that the program should be structured in a way where uh, there's some correspondence between those two things. But that's not true. Or okay, perhaps you, Medicaid would be retrofitted to, I don't know, not in a lot of states be run by private health insurance companies right, like United. Right, exactly. And shit. That would precisely, be a non-neoliberal right. that's, framework. That's, that's another. Right. And that's that's another sort of piece of this. But even at the very, very basic level of, you know, was there a correspondence between uh, unemployment levels and, and increases in, in Medicaid roles? Um, once you control for the uh, the eligibility, right, uh, whether or not states had uh, people like up to 138 percent of the federal poverty line allowed, that correlation goes away. Uh, entirely between unemployment and Medicaid enrollment. So like what really matters and like uh, talk to anybody that like has to help people enroll for for these programs is like, you know, you can work with the uh, administrative burdens all you want. Um, what really matters is like at the end of the day, do people meet uh, the asset test, right? Or do like, you know, right. do people meet the means test? As long as there is means testing in this program, um, you are going to see uh, problems, and it's only going to be uh, magnified once states have to start doing. I mean, we're we're like approaching a point where all of the co the contradictions of Medicaid should be uh, like coming incredibly clear yeah. uh, by January of this year because states are going to have to do. It almost reminds me of like the disability evaluation. Uh, surge in the early 1980s yeah. where like you're having you're all of this administrative work that states are going to have to do and uh, after the public health emergency goes out they're not going to have the increased federal match to mm -hmm. do it with right so all of this all of these state costs are going to increase states are going to be under increasing pressure to kick people off right and that should set up like if you're the biden administration okay i'm not like this is my like play. I'm going to play the part of a Biden administration person for a second. Like you might be thinking, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not imagining you're thinking like Medicare for all or anything, but you might be thinking like, <laughs> hmm, maybe we need to like, I don't know, federalize Medicaid spending a bit more. Yeah, at maybe a minimum. We, at a minimum. Right. Like, you know, again, I'm trying to be like critical, but realistic It's right, like, yeah. you, you might think that like at a minimum they would do that or at a minimum they would be thinking like, Oh, maybe we need to make permanent some of these things that were temporary, um, in, in the pandemic. But what I, from what I can tell, the focus is like 
not on that, right? The focus is no. on like, yet like around the edges, these sort of administrative burdens, which I admit sort of like are important, but like this is an opportunity where I think millions of people could be experiencing this uh, loss of, of insurance coverage. That's a huge potential constituency for something that's like more enduring, but even like if you look at the sort of what what some like large nonprofits are doing around this, like that's not where their energy is focused. It's not on anything that even like we wouldn't consider it transformative. But for the sort of uh, Washingtonian, like I think uh, crowd, like it would be it would be really, really different. But like there's no there doesn't seem to me what I've seen any sort of sense that like, oh, this is a huge, important political opportunity where we can say this system does not make sense. Right. Um, and, and it's just like that to me suggests like, no, this is, you know, maybe some temporary abeyance from like the worst parts of neoliberalism. But if anything, it just confirms that it's as strong as ever. Right. Meanwhile, as you're pointing out, the Biden administration is really not talking about this at all. The New York Times uh, referred to this situation. They, you know, did write up how, the you know, this situation is coming, uh, characterizing it uncritically uh, as a purge of the Medicaid forever rules. Purge. The, for, Medicaid. Right, the forever purge. Medicaid. The forever purge. Twenty twenty one. Exactly. Or coming twenty twenty two. Which, um, but you know, it, it's it's talked about as though like the weather is rolling in. You know what I mean? <laughs> as opposed to this categoric indictment of the way that we um, do things. Not only obviously, as we would say here, you know, this is a clear sign where if you have one in four people are already on Medicaid, which, as mentioned before means tested to death extremely like you know you have you have to be very poor basically to be on medicaid right so one that is itself an indictment of america's political economy that you have that many people who do qualify in the first place who are on the program um two okay it says a lot about the like the overall priorities of uh the national policy discussion and of the country that this isn't like a gigantic uh, issue and a gigantic story, right? Like this is getting less, this is getting less thrift than, you know, if a, if a fucking individual uh, fast food franchisee is like, I've been sitting at the corner of 50th and Lexington with like a cardboard box uh, propped up by a stick and tied to a string and a plate of cheese underneath. <laughs> like, why is no one coming for a job interview? You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the the most telling example is that, you know, obviously this is a, a terrifying prospect, right? Like you have this huge exponential increase that is in one of the most sort of precarious programs that is uh, most prone to churning people off and on of coverage, right? So it's not only that it's like, oh, there's this huge increase in healthcare access that we want to maintain. It's like, no, there's this huge increase in, in quote unquote healthcare access in the program that is specifically the most chaotic system in the United States and the most different from state to state and across, right, and, yeah. you know, subject to morals and, you know, austerity principles and religious values of the state and whoever is in control of the state. It, it's a disaster. And when you turn to the White House and you say, what are you going to do? The Office of Management and Budget and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are like, well, we're going to make sure that before states kick people off, they don't just send mail. 
they also call people's cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Right. How many and, numbers from, I mean, just like how many unknown numbers do you pick up the phone for? Like right. I, and especially yeah. like, I just like how, like in an era where like the IRS scammers, like the, I don't know. I mean, let's just take it on, on faith that like, as Chiquita Brooks Lasser uh, says, like, you know, we just want to make sure that people who are eligible actually like get the coverage, uh, like a laudable goal, perhaps like not what I would prefer, but like, OK, um, but like the the phone call, like what is yeah. that? Like there's obviously the fact that Medicaid basically will only communicate through mail and the like I've had problems with it in my own certification where because of how slow the mail was getting to me that I missed the deadlines and was like kicked off the rolls like this happens all the time. But simply calling people on top of that does absolutely nothing like, to change any of the reasons why people get kicked off of Medicaid for no good damn reason. Eliminate the deadlines. Okay. Okay. But also like, I, I, I hate to have to like state the obvious here, but like federalize Medicaid. No, no, but like the framework of, Oh yeah, well we just want to, you know, we just want to <laughs> make sure that States yeah. can remove the people who don't actually qualify Right, right. I mean, like, of course. like come on. Yes, right. That's already, you know, you're all, you're already saying basically that the implicit framework there is saying like, well, actually, um, it's, it's not that, uh, so many people are on Medicaid because there is something fundamentally foul in our political economy that is maybe, you know, that perhaps so many people are poor and immiserated and qualify for this again, medical coverage program for extremely low income people because capitalism is fucking evil <laughs> it is Couldn't no actually be that we no. made you know we made things extra generous for a little while and the harsh reality is you just gotta you know we're going back to the less uh the the period where it's going to be less generous and so you know states are going to do what they're going to do they're the laboratories of democracy <laughs> but i think i think you this know. is just one example of where here's this here's this mm -hmm. in incredible like moment of political opportunity, right? Um, among the Medicaid population. And that's not the only piece of it. Like one thing that's happening in, in the employer sponsored population is like premiums will be going up. Cost sharing will be increasing. And even like employer, like em I've seen surveys of like employer groups who are like, you know, like we would appreciate the federal government doing anything more to like, you know, like offload these uh, costs, like, you know, to you know, make, make these things cheaper or at the very least, like to to uh, lessen the burden on us to just like take up the take up the um, mantle of like, you know, providing a public option for everybody. That's that's true across like small and large employers. So like there's this huge like moment of political opportunity and like what is happening, right? Mm -hmm. Is anything being seized on or is it just like, you know, this this idea like, oh, we, we need to do more studies. It's like there's this whole, <laughs> you know, we can blame whatever we want on like the, the capitalist class. But then there's this whole intermediary uh, set of people for whom all of these prop what are problems for everybody else. Right. The, the, the programs and the gaps and the. Uh, the the threat of being like thrown off of coverage like it's a problem for for a lot of people. It's also like a solution for mm -hmm. a whole realm of people who yeah. 
whose entire professional lives, their livelihoods and their uh, sort of like identity is structured around evaluating, recommending, um, you know, analyzing uh, and being like the, you know, the authority. And then in some cases of like nonprofits, like being the intermediary through which people come in contact with the state. Right. And that's just got to end. Like all of those things are just a drain on society. Um, And like it's it's, you know, and and these are people in institutions that have like 501c3 status, like the the status of like, yes, you do something for like social welfare in some vague way. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. But instead, what you're you're predating uh, on on the entire arrangement. Yeah, they're like 501c3 carrying feeders. And I think it's like telling when you you look at like Chiquita Brooks Lashur, who's the the head Biden's head of CMS. Like in her statement, she says, quote, we are very focused on making sure we don't lose our gains in coverage through unnecessary hoops to just throw back to the obvious point that Artie made. Obviously, this is a statement that there are some hoops that are incredibly necessary from their right. position. Yeah. And then the next part of her statement um, was all about expanding and solidifying and making permanent the ACA marketplace subsidies and talking about the gap between Medicaid coverage and marketplace p- plans and needing to subsidize, you know, that transition. And, you know, so what she's actually saying is that, yeah, we are committed to not only sort of maintaining the churn, but we are committed to and understand this sort of incredible problem with the way that the means testing is designed and our solution to that for someone that could, you know, who's a gig worker whose income could shift month to month, be kicked off Medicaid and qualify for ACA one month and then be like three months later back in the Medicaid qualification roles. Her solution is more subsidies and we need to call people and not just give them stuff in the mail. And, and it's one of those, um, just like we need to do extra warnings that they're going to get. Right. And and, and we need to remove those unnecessary hoops. But, you know, of course that framing always implies that there are very real necessary hoops that need to be in place to prevent, prevent that malingering waste, fraud and abuse for all those, you know, fucking fakers who aren't really poor people, but just, the welfare queens living off the state and your hard-earned taxpayer blah 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 whatever (laughs) well and again think about the scale of this if one in four people are on medicaid already then uh, you know again again all of this just undercuts any of the stupid arguments that have been used in the last uh i was gonna say decade but in the last you know fucking century um against socialized medicine any of the arguments against medicare for all and like we're not stupid as as phil said like you know we have no aspersions that this um there's going to be some sort of fucking epiphany and the Biden administration is going to like support Medicare for all of all of a sudden. I mean, right now, like literally this morning, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure uh, plan, which we talked about in, I think, last week's public episode. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. In last week's public episode, uh, which, again, the bipartisan initiative that if you you know uh, go back, we talk about uh, how it like completely excises uh, long-term care from the whole arrangement, Just how important that is. Um, you know, there's news that basically, uh, it seems like Biden has, uh, brokered a deal on, on that. And that, that, uh, that initiative may be the one that goes forward. So, you know, obviously we, you know, but so obviously, you know, low expectations for the, for this white house. And also we know obviously that, you know, Biden, Biden was the candidate who was the most during the debates saying like, 
no, we have to, uh, we, we can't do anything rash on healthcare. We have to uh, protect and uh, build on the ACA, whatever the fuck that means. And like, I'm sorry, like, while I know that the ACA include included expanding Medicaid, obviously, so it's not entirely the like marketplace plans that uh, that are like the focus of the last time that we talked about it on Monday, for example, still the fact that one in four people are on Medicaid should tell you how completely bullshit any of the fucking lines that you've heard for decades are of like people like their employer insurance like people uh you know we we can't disrupt we can't disrupt people's insurance too much if they if they have employer-based coverage etc like it's all fucking bullshit well and here's the thing too in studies of medicaid which has all this churn that we've been talking about right have shown how fucking deleterious the churn is to people's health right when your coverage like goes on and off when it changes when the parameters change when it gets more austere your health outcomes get worse right right? and if you think about it this way actually right now we have one quarter of the population on medicaid there's you know usually 63 million people to 67 million people on medicare so Between the two of those, even though you do have the private industry encroachment of the fact that seven out of 10 Medicaid recipients are on privatized Medicaid and that a significant portion and growing portion of Medicare recipients are on private Medicare Advantage plans, which are trash and really austere and tend to drop people when they get actually sick and actually need medical care. It suddenly can't be paid for. Right. So these are very predatory products, Medicare Advantage. So, you know, you do have these private uh, encroachments on this population, but Practically speaking, actually, you know, CMS and the Social Security Administration have nearly half the population enrolled and ready to go. And we're kind of half. That's almost a halfway step. That's a glide path. People to judge. That's a glide path towards full on Medicare for all free at the point of service with long term care. No copays, no fucking premiums right there. Everyone's data is already in. You just need to enroll the rest of the half of the population and abolish private insurance and you're good to go. Right. Thank you. I mean, this is exactly that. Thank you. That's like exactly what I was uh, what, I, what I was getting at, basically, which is, you know, anyone who has ever said we have to protect like the sanctity of our employer based insurance system, you know, is speaking to a very narrow class of people, actually. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so but I think I think the thing to emphasize, right, is that like the, the clock on this Medicaid uh, thing is ticking. Right. Yeah. And it's there. there is not very long. Uh, between now and when people could, I mean, big, begin to be kicked off in, in just large droves, which I, I mean, I just just thinking about any number of health conditions, uh, chronic or acute, is is a horrifying prospect. And I, I think this is not a moment where like solutionism in the sense of like, oh, ideas that sound good on paper really <laughs> matter. Like there is a kind of consequentialist reasoning that like we have to be applying here is like what will be the thing that will ensure that the just like that no person has to experience that and then that's a bare minimum bare minimum thing right uh because the reality is we need something far more transformational but even if you're like hewing this line of like centrism and moderation like that is just a moral stain 
uh, on you. And like it requires a certain kind of thinking about like what actually uh, solves the problem. So I think this is something that we like should be paying attention to because it's not this it's not the kind of thing you like you can't punt on this like you can punt apparently on everything else. Right. Well, and I think it's really really important to push back on the narrative that oh something terrible is about to happen to this Medicaid population and what is needed is more data and more studies because right. I mean what we actually have is already a dearth of data and studies and really sharp people who have been working on Medicaid churn and you know how that correlates to health outcomes, people working on spatial access to medical care and, you know, all of these different aspects that make people's health worse, that are absolutely fixable. These deliberate choices that we make to distribute things unequally, to make them difficult to use, to make them difficult to qualify for. All of that work has existed and has been done on this population. There is not another study that needs to happen in order for us to act. And the idea that we have to wait for a study in order to act when what we're watching is basically a freight train about to run off of a cliff like the track is ending we can see the track is ending and we just need to pull the lever and stop it we do not need to run a study in order to determine if we are allowed to pull the lever and save people from clear and present and obvious oncoming catastrophe right but there is this liberal neoliberal framework that we use over and over to in order to delay when people don't want to act. And that's what's happening time and time again, especially with Medicaid, because there's no reason that Medicaid wasn't fixed during the AIDS crisis, during the height of the AIDS crisis, right? There's no reason that Medicaid wasn't fixed during the beginning of the pandemic. And there is no reason that they are not fixing Medicaid now, except for they do not want to because they do not give a shit about poor people. Because those are not their constituents. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it is not difficult to figure out what can be what should be done. Right. Right. Like figuring out what should be done is not it's not that we need a new innovative idea or whatever, which obviously is, uh, you know, obviously that's kind of the modus operandi of a lot of neoliberal policymaking is like what what's the new one weird trick or whatever, as opposed to what's pretty simple. What is. What is what can be pretty simply ascertained politically with just, you know, a modicum of criticality towards the uh, towards the makeup of the political economy? The problem solving gets harder the more and more things you stipulate have to remain the same. Right. Right. It it becomes more more, like it starts off as a problem that's like as easy as like opening a can of beans. And then the more and more things you have to hold constant, I don't know, the temperature of the room in which the beans are situated. The fact that like, oh, you can't use a can opener. You actually have to use a um, you have to use like a toothbrush and like also, you know, you have to do it while like standing on your head. Like, you know, it's just like these, um, you know, these sort of situational parameters, they just they just make solving the problem harder and ergo wonderful for experts because yeah. it's like, oh, you know, I, I mean, it's, you know, I don't even have to say I've, I've said enough on this already, but you see the point. Um, this is not a, a question of like. Uh, you know, counting the number of angels that dance on the head of a pin. This is a question of uh, just a, a pretty basic question of what people have like a right to, and w- what is the what is the easiest way of ensuring that they 
get that. Yeah. Right. And instead we have a make work program for uh, opinion columnists and think tanks. I, I mean, guess. it's the only approach to problem solving that does not like basically dictate that you look at your ab- available resources and you see what you can do with your resources to fix the problem. Right. It's an issue of political will. We don't have the will to approach problem solving in a way that actually relates to wanting to solve the material reality of the problem, right? It's a it's a whole industry of problem making, defining, analyzing or whatever that has become this intermediary that basically has prevented um, and become this beautiful shield for politicians who are unwilling to act, right? They're, you can always just say, we need to make a committee on that. We should study yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's the doing better industry. It's right. like, we're, yes, we're just doing more, doing better, but all of the time we are like not only proceeding towards relative general ignorance, but uh, we're doing worse <laughs> all the time. Right. It's like, oh, let's um, let's just observe the horror and violence and then contemplate it, you know, because that's that's all we can really do is <laughs> is just bear witness to the horrible things that are absolutely happening of no fault of any economic pressures or hierarchies. Nobody's decisions did this. This is just the the power of nature will dictate that, you know, 25 to 40 percent of Medicaid recipients might just suddenly get kicked off of their coverage. It'll be great. Um, you always need a new purge movie. you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and maybe this is a good time to move on to our next topic. Yeah. So uh, as I said at the top, a bunch of new people have learned who Emily Oster was this week after a glowing New York Times profile of her work on school reopening during the pandemic was released called She Fought to Reopen Schools, Becoming a Hero and a Villain. And obviously the title and the kind of frame of the article in theory is sort of presenting an even handed both sides approach to profiling Emily Oster. You know, they're sort of hinting at, you know, we we address the criticism as well as loaded a bunch of praise. But mm-hmm. that's not actually what happens in the article well, to the degree that they express the criticism that has been levied at emily oster it says i think um i think actually uh, maya chavez who was quoted in the article uh said like said of this on twitter that it was basically like the criticism uh of oster is presented in sort of the straw man version that basically like mm-hmm. fits with um i mean really what you what, what you get from this which is so much like i think what you get from a lot of the sort of mainstream repackaging of Oster's work and of Oster as a personality uh, in brand. in well in, during the pandemic in economics etc. What you get is like the the criticism of Oster's work comes almost in the form it, it appears almost in the form that you imagine is like how Oster herself thinks of the criticism. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's very much like giving her perspe- her perspective on it. In the way that, yeah, like it, it, it reads like, you know, Oster came in as this economist, uh, you know, talking about public health things and people either didn't trust that she was an economist and talking about public health or they didn't trust that she was from an elite university and that, you know, actually the problem is that people are very small and uh, narrow minded and that they, they don't like to listen to experts uh, right yeah (laughs) i think this got this got nicely kind of uh digested i guess by uh in a in like a tweet by matt iglesias where he was sort of like he's like you know you know this is this is the thing this is like 
you know, we've, we have these public health people, but they're like, they, they don't listen to critique from like outside of their field. And like, at the very <laughs> least, like here's a person like who has the math, who has the numbers and can show us what the cost benefit analysis is on, you know, students being physically distanced in school or like students wearing masks or students uh, doing virtual learning. And like, I think there's this, there are a couple of like important moves that are going on here, which I, I think are pretty um, and I want to go through like the article with this in mind, which is that uh, on the one hand, there's this sleight of hand, which is, uh, well, oh, no, economics is just bringing, you know, a, a different set of analytical techniques that they're just like, you know, they would do the cost benefit analysis, but CDC wouldn't. And like, you know, don't these don't these public health researchers, don't they need to like get out of their disciplinary shell and like listen to reason for once? Right. Um or just yeah, like never once questioning if it's like necessary to do a cost benefit analysis for a public health measure like that, but, of course. But also neglecting the fact that these techniques doing cost benefit <laughs> analysis on public health is not just like yet one other analytical technique like calculating a mean versus a median or something like mm-hmm. that. It's <laughs> right. It is a matter of like imposing a certain value set on the question, which public health uh, 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 epidemiologists you're like, there is something called the precautionary principle, meaning uh, in conditions of uncertainty, you do things that uh, minimize uh, the amount of harm from a particular uh, risk uh, to the largest number of people possible and that you explicitly don't do cost benefit analysis. And in fact, like we do a lot of cost benefit analysis and regulation of public health in the U.S., um, but we don't, but in, in other countries, much less so, right? It's a choice. It reflects a certain value, but that is completely in this narrative. It's all about like, here's this expert with this different set of techniques. And it really, the article sort of reads very much like the interior of an economist's mind. Like when you ask <laughs> economists about their profession and there've been surveys of this economists to a far greater degree than people in other disciplines um, in the United States report like that their discipline is the most scientific one compared to all of these other ones. Right. Um, they're far less likely than anybody else to say that interdisciplinary work uh, or listening to people from different perspectives or, or different disciplines has any value at all. Th- they have a hierarchy in their heads that's established from the time of graduate school in very, very hierarchical uh, programs, um, that like there's only certain people within our field who are the best. There are only the people at the elite institutions and our field right. is the best. We are better than any other field. We can do anything. We can essentially when there's a debate, we supersede the uh, insights that anybody else might bring to bear expert or not. Um, <laughs> and this has been this is very interesting history, like in the U.S. Um, compared to other countries this has always been the way economics has developed because economists were sort of always outside of the state. And in order to get power within the state, they had to develop this identity where they were, um, you know, explicitly more scientific than anybody else, more objective than anybody else, and uh, more rigorous and more advanced in their techniques than anybody else. <laughs> and like that, if you compare them to economists in Britain and France, where economists were much more integrated with the civil service, that is what has made uh, American economists not only have this very narrow neoclassical uh, perspective, <laughs> but uh, is also the reason why th- 
they end up taking precedence and prominence in debates like this one over other people. And what happens in this New York Times story is rather than interrogating any of that at all, it just reflects it. Uh, it's just like it just reifies yeah. the idea that like, no, 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 economists come in and like they have better ideas. And I, oh, oh, if people would only <laughs> listen to them, right. um, uh, maybe we would, you know, have some sort of. Uh, reason in the world yeah and i want to i want to back up uh that that claim of yours so for example when you're talking about when you're talking about that and uh the times profile being written very much from explicitly that perspective uh here's one really simple uh example of that so they're they're talking about how uh it, when they characterize how uh emily oster's um school tracker because you know if we haven't <laughs> since we haven't uh, set this up emily oster um if you haven't listened to like a previous episodes where we've talked about her emily oster um is a brown university economist uh we'll, we'll get into some of her other background in a in a minute i think um, but who has like sort of rose uh, rose to prominence? Well, rose to greater prominence during the who, pandemic. Who's, yeah, yeah who, who's sort of rose to greater prominence during the pandemic by uh, asserting a number of things, including uh, you know she's a very prominent advocate for reopening schools under pretty much any circumstances. She's done a lot of stuff, um, especially recently, saying that like you know kids don't have to wear masks even if they're not vaccinated or whatever. She famously wrote a a recent uh, article in the Atlantic that got a lot of flack that we talked about on the show um, that was about how you can consider your child to be about the same level of pandemic safety as your vaccinated grandparent, um, which is, you know, something else, uh, which she ultimately apologized for. But in, you know, in that but way, it where like it's like, a, apology. yeah, like, sorry, you didn't like the truth that I told kind of way. Um, and, and like, yeah, I know but, I didn't really consider kids that were like immunocompromised or maybe, you know, not uh, normal, but like, that's not really on me to consider. But so, so most importantly though, uh, over the course of the pandemic, she set up this thing, uh, the COVID-19 schools dashboard with the goal of like, uh, collecting data to support basic, like specifically basically with the goal of uh, collecting data to support, um, school reopening. She started collecting self-reported data from a bunch of schools who, again, provided this data to her. Her, which in the beginning it was um, mostly private schools too, right, exactly. non-public schools. Which, which we've talked about on the show before. A lot of problems with the data. It's basically it's like an incredibly uh, like selective set of again self-reported data. It's basically it, it in terms of like any sort of actually uh, you know whatever scientific or intellectual rigor. It's like this doesn't even pass a sniff test. Basically, in terms of in terms of being valuable data, it's just a bunch. It's like it, we've characterized it before. Or we've characterized her whole thing before actually as sort of like gentleman scientist vibes you oh, know what i mean sure. like 19th century gentleman scientist like i'm going to collect a few data points on a, a couple of things and this is going to tell me that the cerebellum of the human female is you know x size different than the human male or whatever, i mean you know? it literally but, reminds me of like desisance like being like oh the thing to cure my depression is a nutritional enema right but the new york times piece characterizes this uh, the new york times piece talks about the school uh the school COVID dashboard and the findings that she then, uh, you know, very, very publicly in, in op-eds and in interview appearances, um, public statements, um, tweets, different Her things like that, sack. very actively, uh, promoted inferences from, uh, from this again, basically total junk data. Um, and here is how it's characterized in the times profile. 
uh, of the reception of it is characterized in the Times profile. Quote, it turned out that many educators would not accept a coolly intellectual framework <laughs> for balancing risk and reward, especially not one advanced from the environs of Brown University. So, oh my God. Yeah, but th- this is exactly, I think this is, you know, I- exactly an example of what Phil's talking about, which is it accepts this notion that the economics profession again this like cool detached intellectual space or whatever is you know sort of beyond reproach and it's up to and and basically if for example you know teachers unions and and parents and others had a problem with uh what oster was saying uh or had a problem for instance with the fact that like her research is backed by money from among other things i don't know uh, Cokes, Peter <laughs> Thiel, the Waltons, uh, Chan Zuckerberg, love teacher unions, um, the, Famously. yeah, you know, uh, like a, a lot of different uh, places that are basically, you know, very pro like charter school, basically mm-hmm. like school privatization, school um, choice, 100%. Who, who, uh, that like if anyone had a problem with any of that, uh, that simply they were, you know, not cool, you know, man. They did. Well, they, yeah, they didn't like the reality that she was demonstrating yeah, well, to mean, them or something. Well, no, but th- this is, we talked about, I think we talked about this before, but it's, wor- it's worth repeating again. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the sort of the, the maddening thing for me has always been the way that she simultaneously was able to have uh, a foot in both camps and avoid critique in either camp by hopping back to the other. So like, okay, you know what academics frequently involved in political activism too. And that's Mm -hmm. whatever, that's fine. That's like good. What, you know, fine. But like when you are in the domain of politics and advancing different policy ideas that have the explicit connections to this, this broader network of people, you can't then say, no, no, I'm just following like my nose. I'm just following you know, where, where the evidence takes me. And I, I don't have anything to say about this. Like, no, no, no. You have to go back to the, the other arena and like defend yourself there. And, and like, you can't disclaim that because that's what you, that's the project you're engaged in. Yeah. Um, right. But this, this article is like, it, it, it again is like, it has gone inside her mind and like, <laughs> like wrenched out the, 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 the defense posture, which is like, Oh, you know, but these people were like, this is like a very unfair ad hominem, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, and then, and, and it's, it's just untrue. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things, that that I was like fuming over this morning was that even some of the economists who have questioned and publicly called out Emily Oster's methods and called into question, you know, her tendency to sort of do and we'll get into this in a bit, do like a very Freakonomic sort of pop econ, like I've got this idea and I'm going to go sort of like find the small find a data set however small it is that sort of fits my framework and run with that and sort of explore and see what I find you know even the people that have critiqued Emily Oster for sort of bad econ work then still who are coming from econ are like yeah but at least I guess 
you know, she's a healthcare economist or she's an economist that studies healthcare. <laughs> so it's she's yeah, not totally right. out of her to lane. Time. And it's like, okay, it's wait, but lanes. like, what does she actually <laughs> study in healthcare? And if you look back at if you look at her work, and also especially <laughs> like if you just read the synopsis of her first 2013 book, what she studies in healthcare is very much all about. Um, pushing back on the precautionary principle because mm-hmm. the thing she really, you know, there, we'll get into some of her earlier work, but the thing that made her sort of a pop econ sensation um, in 2013 with her first book was pushing back on the recommendation to not drink wine while you're pregnant, saying that, you know, there wasn't research to support it, whereas public health officials countered and said, yeah, there isn't enough research on pregnant women in general, but the reason this recommendation is this way is because of the precautionary principle. And she said, no, that's bullshit. Uh, Public health officials don't want pregnant women to have fun. This is about controlling women. And it's like, okay, so like her entire brand actually in studying healthcare as an economist is pushing back and using economic frameworks and ideology to debunk the idea of the precautionary principle, right. stuff like we don't need seatbelt shit that she's written, stuff like about traffic lights, the sort of like, oh, well, you know, you're more likely to die in a car accident than of COVID bullshit. Like, that is what her brand is. Yeah. But, yeah so uh, this is important because this this whole thing that like, oh, it's, it's about lanes and people are telling her to stay in her lane. Yeah, like, yeah. That's a canard. No. There are no lanes. Exactly. OK, there are no lanes and anybody can study anything they want. Obviously, but when you are on the terrain of different principles about how the world should be organized, you have to like say that it's not just about like, oh, I brought like different numbers and like, oh, I've challenged these people. It's like, no, you brought a completely different set of value propositions. And the question is whether or not we believe you. And this whole idea that she's this, this, this is, this is the most maddening. This whole idea is that she was, oh, this like victim of all of these attacks. Like as if every fucking state legislature and governor didn't implicitly price human life lower than she even would. As if, as if Uh. like a huge component of the American governance infrastructure wasn't 100% on board with the way that uh, she would have approached uh, governing Hell the pandemic. Yeah. And, and yeah. ergo, yeah. we have over 600,000 deaths in the United States. Isn't that a surprise? Like, yeah. So this yeah. idea, like, oh, the oh the besmirched, econ- the figure of the lonely, besmirched economist weeping at her desk at Brown. What a fucking joke. Insane. Worst reporting ever. Can I just say, uh, I'm biased, but top quality rant, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I it's think, just, it's just, you just like, have you been in a seal, hermetically sealed box for the entire pandemic? Like <laughs> in, just nuts. I think, um, I think to the end of all this, actually, I, the, the, the thing that you uh, raised, Phil, is really important. This whole thing about the precautionary principle and how basically, you know, to a certain extent, obviously a lot of um, uh, dis- like discipline divisions, um, obviously it's all permeable. Like you can, as you said, like you can study whatever you whatever you want. Obviously, though, when you have this hierarchy of when you clearly have this hierarchy of, well, you know, uh, why, why would you think about this? Like, why would public health think about things in terms of uh, the precautionary principle when obviously, uh, you know, economics teaches us that everything is a 
that the the goal of everything is uh, cost benefit analysis and everything like that. Everything is a trade off, right? right? (laughs) Shout out to um, if you're actually quick aside, if you're um, if if you're a listener and you really appreciate our our health policy analysis. Um, do us a favor and leave negative comments in the in the reviews of the podcast trade-offs uh, or go listen to it if you <laughs> yes. want if you want to like don't I, I, I hesitate to recommend this because like it, it is a little bit like engaging in self-pain but Not, if you want to go yeah. hear some like terrible terrible shit um, listen to trade-offs and experience how how people actually think about you um, anyway Sorry for that aside. Um, but yeah, but I but I think that that but that that nicely clarifies like one of the aspects of the project here, which is, you know, for economists, it's like, oh, these public health people have they have they are they are telling you uh, what level of risk you should uh, tolerate. And uh, and and us economists, we're willing to let you through your um, consumer behaviors, which we then survey and we, you know, then calculate a, val- a value of statistical life based on what you do. Right. Yeah. So we're not we're not imposing any values. That's just what you do. Um, we're going to tell you what what's like an advisable risk as if that doesn't completely abnegate any idea of like the public interest right. uh, like in that is inherent in like civil service and public health. Well, and, and to back this up, I want to point us towards something that B mentioned, which is Emily Oster's first book, um, which is called um, I'm Ex- not kidding. Expecting, expecting better. better. Um, which is a, a book about um, pregnancy. Why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong and what you really need to know. Not a clickbaity title at all. Yeah. And I think that there are some things from the way that sort of the thesis of the project here, which, you know, I know obviously this is just this is merely one of her books, but it is kind of like it is kind of related to what has been a huge focus Um at least in the way that she, her like publicly facing work, um, is, which is this sort of, you know, as B mentioned, sort of free economics offering, uh, counterintuitive advice, uh, which is basically sort of like picking data points and, uh, and then pointing towards, oh, this suggests that, I mean, she has a paper from college where it was like, uh, or from her PhD program or something where it's like, which burnings were because of weather. Um, but anyway, yeah. I think that's, <laughs> but so, um, I promise this will be brief, but I do I do think that this says a lot about Emily Oster's overall project. And it's also I'm sorry, the things that you're about to hear are fucking hilarious um, to me. Okay, Uh, quote. And again, this is from her first book, Expecting Better. What I didn't expect at all is how much I would put the tools of my job as an economist to use during my pregnancy. This may seem odd. Despite the occasional use of doctor in front of my name, I am not, in fact, a real doctor, let alone an obstetrician. If you have a traditional view of economics, you're probably thinking of Ben Bernanke making Fed policy or the guys creating financial derivatives at Goldman Sachs. (laughs) You would not go to Alan Greenspan for pregnancy advice. But here is the thing. The tools of economics turn out to be enormously useful in evaluating the quality of information in any situation. Economists' core decision-making principles are applicable everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. And that includes the womb. I didn't repeat the everywhere that's written in the text. 
At the University of Chicago, I teach introductory microeconomics to first-year MBA students. My students would probably tell you, and this is before she worked at Brown, my students would probably tell you the point of the class is to torture them with calculus. In fact, I have a slightly more lofty goal. I want to teach them decision-making. Ultimately, this is what microeconomics is. Decision science. A way to structure yes. your thinking so you make saying. good choices. Oh. I mean, oh, what, a mar- what a throwback to Margaret Sanger. Oh my God. Ladies and gentlemen, I've created a thinking machine. <laughs> <laughs> really great things happen when you put like a word, like any word before science, right? Yeah. Decision Ladies science. And gentlemen, this is race pizza science. science. <laughs> this is pizza science. Yeah. No, it's like, no, it's more insidious. It's like there's just a way of making decisions. Like it's like it, yeah. the, the beauty. The beauty. This of This is it, just how it's done. It's natural. Yeah, no, this, the beauty of it, I, I think, like, and like this is why. And when I think about it, like the history of economics, like there are all of these moments where economists then interpose themselves in other fields and then take them over. And like health economics and like you know the Rand healthcare study would be like one mm-hmm. kind of like example of this. Um, but also like in the early '80s, like the economists moving into like. Uh, K-12 education and saying like it's a nation at risk uh, that that whole sort of thing S- same deal but like the beauty of it is that it's shorn of all context it's just like th- there no ideology nothing this is just the way decisions are made this is right. how this is how things are done and that's why it's so insufferable to argue with uh, somebody Absolutely. who like has training in like an MBA micro course because that's how they teach us and like it's like it is as close to like religion as I can it's like this is the law and the prophets baby yes she continues <laughs> I try to teach my students that making good decisions in business and in life requires two things. First, they need all the information about the decision. They need the right data. (laughs) Got to do the studies before we can fix Medicaid. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Second, they need to think about the right way to weigh the pluses and minuses of the decision. In class, we call this costs and benefits for them (laughs) personally. This is the other part of it, though, which is important, which is, I think, has shades of how she has treated the pandemic, which is that like it's cost benefit analysis and specifically it's cost benefit analysis that you have to consider at the expense of any sort of uh, larger social solidarity or any sort of other thing other than what you personally have to logically conclude about your own again, personal behavior. So libertarian. Um, well, it's like, you know, no, no wonder so many people uh, found her like, I don't know, intellectually or philosophically like comforting during the pandemic because those were like, you know, personal responsibility as we've talked about all the time were the fucking marching orders of the pandemic in the United States. But anyway, I digress. In fact, she writes, once you internalize economic decision making, it comes up everywhere. Like most healthy young women, pregnancy was my first sustained interaction with the medical system. It was getting pretty frustrating. Adding to the stress of the rules was the fear of what might go wrong if I did not follow them. Of course, I had no way of knowing how nervous I should be. I wanted a doctor who was trained in decision making. (laughs) In fact, this isn't really done much in medical schools. Appropriately, medical school tends to focus much more on the mechanics of being a doctor but it doesn't leave much time for decision theory. Wait a minute. Wait. Me- sorry. Medical school doesn't teach 
decision like making what 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 exactly are clinical <laughs> rotations for i'm not really yeah. sure what happens in those or in residency but do but do go on emily yeah. do tell us about no, medicine no, only only economics can make decisions clearly i guess one thing that uh you know reviewing some of her past work has made me think is like god help us if she ever has a situation where either herself or her extended family encounter something like uh either i don't know like the long-term care system in the united states or uh for instance like she gets i don't know diagnosed she or someone that she actually cares about gets like diagnosed with uh you know a, a chronic illness or something because then i feel like because she seems to have this like legacy of things that's, that are personally irritating to her becoming this like public bugbear of hers like for example uh her situation here that she's describing as this like personal grievance with like the like the fact that again like the medical system is not run through decision science or whatever to <laughs> the fact that clearly part of it part of her pandemic appeals were were like personal like from the from some of the mass stuff that she tweeted about over the pandemic to the fact that like clearly there was a compulsion to like want to have students kids like back in school right and, you know and that's I mean? a big part like, of the framing of the gets... new york times article is this whole thing of like she her whole thing is that well working parents can't keep their kids home so something has to give and there's a very narrow mention of the fact that the kind of working parent that Oster's talking about is a very very narrow constituency of a certain class i would right? characterize a lot of it as like someone tells emily oster you can't do this. And Emily Oster says, yeah, but I can do this, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I love from this New Yorker article about her in 2019, which was about her as this kind of pregnancy, like counterintuitive pregnancy guru. There's a quote from Amy Schumer who called Oster the non-judgmental girlfriend holding our hand and guiding us through pregnancy and motherhood. So it's like she's got this like she had this figure going into this into the pandemic. She had this brand going into the pandemic where she was this counterintuitive Freakonomics sponsored. She, you know, she's um, kind of a, a protege of the Freakonomics guys. They uh, published and like publicized some of her early work, um, which we can get into in a bit. But so she she sort of became popular as this pop economist whose thing was like, well, you know, uh, I was a protege child, such a protege that I was studied. And, you know, I'm a very smart economist and I wanted to be a doctor. But when I was, you know, deciding about pre-med and I, I did a summer in internship, I had to kill fruit flies and I found that disgusting. So she kind of has this framework and she insinuates that the only reason she did not become a doctor was not because she was not capable or didn't do the study, but because she found having to, you know, kill things to be unpalatable and changed her mind. But I think that there's this sort of she's very she lacks a lot of self-awareness. And I think there's this framework of like, I could have been a doctor, you know what I mean? But I just did a, like economics anyways, because mommy was like an economist and daddy was an economist and my husband is an economist. So I am an economist, too. But I absolutely could have been the doctor. So she kind of has this framework of like, 
Okay, so I am the go-to mommy advice person for rich white women who want counterintuitive advice. That, that's been her brand. She's been branded for a while as a public health influencer, but specifically in the maternity space. And the interesting thing is, is that actually before the pandemic, she was working on this book called The Family Firm, which is her upcoming book that she's also been promoting as part of her pandemic uh, school dashboard response. Right. The, the pitch <laughs> of which is literally applying the sort of lessons that they teach you in business school and management school to parenting. Yeah, but she's also going up in the years. So as she, as her children age, she's expanding her brand. No, but, that, but that's what to, I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm concerned about with like as 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 Emily Oster continues to experience mm-hmm. life and the and the various things that she's going to be exposed to. Like I'm very concerned for uh, ultimately whatever her policy prescriptions will be when she begins to encounter stuff like yeah. long-term care because I think she really has the capacity to be someone like a Zika Manuel figure except for totally. probably more harrowing because Zika Man- uh, you know Zika Manuel is a bioethicist who thinks like an economist not like <laughs> someone who's you know just an economist who thinks that like well whatever i can i can say whatever the fuck i want about public health right no exactly and and i think too you know one of one of the things that has been kind of problematic about her work from the beginning has been the fact that she i mean she's not really a serious economist she's not really a, a rigorous uh, serious economist she is 100% the sort of new breed of pop econ um, public figure and right out of grad school is sort of plucked by the Freakonomics guys. Um, what's his name? Uh, like, is it Stephen Levitt, Levitt or something? Levitt yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So like she is kind of a Levitt protege. And because of this, this paper that she wrote about witchcraft and weather in Europe, it caught his attention. Also, probably the fact that she had prominent economists, parents who, you know, took audio tapes of her talking to herself in her crib and then let their colleagues at Yale study the tapes and then they published a book about it had already attracted the attention of like the Freakonomics people because they like sort of curios in the gentleman science way that they do. But basically, so she wrote this paper about witchcraft that was a little that was pretty ridiculous, but it caught their attention. And so when her dissertation came out with this sort of groundbreaking uh, reframe of of why there were fewer female babies born in certain parts of Asia came out. It was a huge deal because um, they took her work, her dissertation, and publicized it. They wrote a huge story on it in Slate. It became part of the Freakonomics narrative of like the case of the missing women is the one that's uh, that's using her work, and they made it huge. And it turns out Emily Oster was absolutely incorrect and that she had run with an assumption (laughs) and used bad data. And a lot of critiques of this this situation and how it's gone down, um, you know, economists have pointed out that not only did Freakonomics, these Freakonomics guys really contribute to the spread and the 
the sort of social virality of her idea and her brand, but they also did it ignoring a senior uh, academic who was, a, I think, a woman of color who had better, more rigorous work that said the exact opposite. Right. So yeah, her work is very much tied up into the Freakonomics model, which is infamous for you know sort of being uh, full of errors and prone to oversimplification. Right. And and like in a way, like I you know there's you you scratch the surface. You know, in any academic field or academic journal, you're going to see like any any number of like bad assumptions, bad data, prop, you know, whatever. The difference here, and I think this is it's worth thinking about the history of like Freakonomics. Like, and I don't know if you guys have read the book, um, but it has I had a lot to in, in high school. Yeah, it like <laughs> it has a lot reading. in common. <laughs> it has a lot in common with like this this genre th- thematic in in pop science that I think is very important for understanding the um, s- social uh, virality of of somebody like uh, Emily Oster, which is that um, regardless about like the quality of the research, I could I could care less. But it's it's the narrative that that is really important, which is like there's a hidden world um, that you don't know about and it's guiding things. Uh, everything that people do and that really by tapping into the underpinning like logic of decisions, you will understand it and you will <laughs> succeed in the world. Um, and it, it like emerges at this, like I think very pivotal moment in, in sort of like the transformation of capitalism, you like the rise of the knowledge economy. Um, and I think that it, the reason that it has any grip at all in the sort of, professional sort of managerial class is nothing seems to make sense uh, anymore. Like increasingly you're being asked to do things that don't like, you know, uh, (laughs) demands on productivity are increasing. um, But your, you know, pay is not increasing. um, The amount of time that you have to like actually devote to like your social and familial relationships is diminishing. And it seems that everyone is out to get you. Everyone is chiseling um, you and, and like you're, you're being taken advantage of in all of these ways. And if you simply understand uh, these sort of basic principles, you will succeed. And what does that mean? It means that you as an individual, as a self will um, you will earn more, you will uh, enjoy the the fruits of whatever toil uh, capitalism demands of you more. You'll be able to like you'll you'll still be on the hedonic treadmill, but you'll have something good to listen to <laughs> while you're on the hedonic treadmill, right? Mm-hmm. And like I think that's very important because like the particularities of Oster are, you know, like I, I think we should go go sort of into them, but like I think the reason that 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 she matters is that she ends up being able to coalesce this sort of um, kind of co- coterie of professional class people into 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 this idea that like what most people want in the sort of like uh, sort of democratic kind of legitimacy like framework is actually bad and that it is in fact like elites and experts um, and sort of like an epistocracy of, of people that in <laughs> fact that's a better way of running the world that if you simply listen to us um, we actually know what you want better than you do because that's what we do, right? right? That's our job. And like that to me, like the fact that, that there is this like constituency out there for that speaks to the sort of increasingly precarious nature of the work that goes on 
uh, along a, a, a variety of places in the economic stratum where people are increasingly feeling like that they can't do what's being demanded of them and they are going to, f- I mean, I think that's the thing. It's the fear of fucking up. Right. When I think about like Cook's Illustrated and like that guy and like, oh, why do we do all these like tests? It's like people are afraid of fucking up uh, dinner and they're going to embarrass themselves in front of their friends. <sighs> or like they're not going to choose something. They're not going to choose a suitable claret uh, to accompany the meal. <laughs> like that's the kind of milieu that this kind of advice works in. And I think she's, you know, managed to uh, she's managed to dominate in it because of that. Right. And I, I think, you know, she is just this is her brand. And ultimately, she is expanding her brand from being the cost benefit mommy influencer into you know i can really tackle everything and that's a that's a terrifying figure to have develop out of the crisis that that has been covid especially considering it's like, like if, if uh, gwyneth paltrow had uh academic credentials or yeah, something. yeah yeah exactly i mean considering the fact that um her her work has been used to undermine like labor protections that were being sought by public school teachers you know that she did this work on covid saying she was speaking for all parents when that explicitly contradicted what parents of color were saying about their own needs and whether they felt comfortable sending their children back to school. And what her work's done actually is contributed to the mountain of evidence advocating for exactly, as we said at the top, the response that the U.S. had, which is in totally keeping with the ideology here of valuing the sort of economic framework of life over, you know, any sort of public health approach that could, you know, be preventative in any capacity. Well, it's also interesting the degree to which in, for example, the New York Times profile from this week that we're talking about, there is this sort of through line that is never actually directly addressed. And it's sort of just uh, left there um, in some cases, almost as though it's some sort of like positive thing, which is uh, which is the idea that in particular Oster's work resonated with uh, upper middle class people and generally more well off people and that there's this like whole to read from this for example there's a there's uh the times quotes this epidemiologist uh whitney robinson who uh who speaks uh who you know has some incredibly mild uh you know sort like half criticism of of oster but ultimately says um says a lot of really positive things uh about oster's work Here's one quote, quote, that really is her gift, she said, um, synthesizing quantitative studies and spitting out rough guidelines or ways of thinking that can guide choices for upper middle class, urban, suburban, sort of coastal people. Um, and there are like there are at least two other references to this, basically, that's like in particular, this resonates, uh, you know, this Oscar's work clearly resonates with like a very particular kind of person. And that makes a lot of, uh, that makes a lot of sense, especially considering that like so much of this other work that we've talked about is this sort of, um, you know, you can do the cost benefit analysis on your life. Like the, there are rules for, you know, there are rules for people, but like, you know, you, you and I know, uh, from, you know, from being this particular class of person, like we can bend those a little bit, right. You're Mm -hmm. used to bending the rules (laughs) a little bit. Um, and, and all of that is like uh, is is sort of inbuilt in this in a way that is very appropriate because it's sort of I think along the lines of some of what Phil was saying about uh, the, the the rise of 
uh, Freakonomics and certain changes in capitalism. It's like there is also this, um, I think even you see this in the stuff we were talking about around the way that Medicaid is talked about. There's this like kind of blanket perception that like you're very used to if you, uh, you know, I don't know, if you turn on something like NPR or whatever, that's just like so fully bought in to our murderous political economy, mm-hmm. basically, that someone like Emily Oster thinks it's, you know, extremely relevant and important to impart thoughtful life advice, you know, for those wanting to get ahead, which ultimately, you know, it, it can only, I think, come from like a true believer who's like fully indoctrinated in the sort of personal responsibility narrative of uh, of the fucking of the American state because the personal responsibility narrative comes from and is reinforced, uh, not, not just comes from, but like the personal responsibility narrative is sort of best reinforced if you're coming from a perspective where you feel like, oh, well, you know, there aren't boundaries to my advancement. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you, you know, an individual who can sort of, who is exceptional and can sort of choose my own, you know, destiny or, and, and whatever, you know, si- like systematic, uh, right. any sort of like systematic oppression or whatever is not visited on me. Um, and, and so everyone else must sort of feel that way, even if they're, you know, even if they're poor, they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps mm-hmm. or that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Well, I, this is yeah. why I sort of feel like I, I can't fully understand why the Emily Oster story is interesting at all, right? Um, and and that that to me makes it interesting to talk about, right? Um, right. Why, why, why is this interesting? Like, it's not interesting. <laughs> like, the things that she's saying, okay, are not at all different from what I think prevailing ideology is certainly in the middle class is. Um, and certainly, like, if you look at what her, like, recommendations were, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> certainly... Uh, it's not as if she was kind of this, like completely on this like fringe and like, you know, the implicit like decisions of a lot of like governments like didn't go along with her. Like they did. Um, so like, what's the point I think of like talking about her and like making this narrative about her for like the times. And I think it's like, we need, you know, the, I think, um, like anything, like, like, like any religion, uh, you know, or like any system of belief, like neoliberalism needs saints, right? You need mm-hmm. people who are like right. doing the good work and like, you know, showing people what, what the true version of the thing is. And like, that is, that is, it's, it's not that she's like, like, is she important? Does she matter? I don't know. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like she is just, she is just sort of reinforcing things. Maybe she's helping people articulate it, maybe in like discussions in a different way, but like, I'm sort of of the belief and I don't know what you guys think about this, but like, I'm sort of the belief that she matters because we can like point to her as like a means of like, Oh, here's this person like spreading, spreading the good news of the church. Um, but other than that, it's like, I'm not sure that like dogmatically she's like bending the curve in an in any particular way no i i completely agree it's like she's of a type you know mm-hmm. i think she's you know she, i think she's just absolutely of a type um she's maybe uh in i think I, I think during the pandemic she certainly made herself an emblematic uh type of the sort of like uh you know application of uh re- refreshed like bell curve theory to the fucking social sciences right. or, or whatever but um but I, you know i think in the in the long run obviously in the long run in terms of a broader intellectual history 
fundamentally unremarkable. I mean, right? just sort of a, I think, just, but like in terms of the, the needs of empire, like absolutely a useful idiot. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally see her as a kind of like, she could be the next Dr. Oz, you know, just because, just because Dr. Oz was coming from medicine with his expertise doesn't mean that the next person who's going to step into those shoes is going to be coming from medicine because it has nothing to do, you know, the Dr. Oz persona and the kind of, um, you know, stand in that these people who become these kind of like quasi firebrand public health officials, but like in the airport right. book sense. Well, like, and and importantly, it has nothing to do with the aesthetics of television. Right, too. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's almost like this Which kind of New York Times, New Yorker, like aspirational, almost like a luxury version, like, you know, of um of that figure of the sort of like a uh, contrarian influencer, right? Who's, who's more about telling people to meet their needs and seek their individual truths. And it really, you know, at the end of the day, like is Emily Oster evil? Absolutely not. She's not smart enough. Like it's <laughs> the problem is that she is, as I already was saying, so bought in, she is absolutely bought into a capitalist reality that values people in a way that we find disgusting. And what happens, unfortunately, you know, is that these people are very useful to empire. And so you get these glowing portraits of them that try and launder that and sell them as these figures that can fix your life. I mean, Emily Oster's brand is she can fix your life through optimization. And yeah. that's fundamentally bullshit. Well, right. Yeah. It's it's funny because I think a lot of the um sort of the implicit tack that this New York Times piece takes is like she gets all of these she gets all of these criticisms and isn't that sort of like, you know, doesn't that say a lot about like the like the death of uh, trust and trust in experts and, you know, the the sort of the 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 masses not not believing uh, the uh, the the well well schooled and, the, you know, the the credentialed. But I actually think it's kind of the reverse. Right. It's the in fact, it does her, the, the figure of, of Emily Oster does suggests to me a certain kind of moment of the crisis of 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 expertise but she is actually a kind of scion of that uh yeah. it's it's in fact the it's in fact that she is coming to stand in for um this sort of debate that might go on uh sort of among um epidemiologists and she's saying no 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 they don't have your best values in mind trust me Right. right. Um, the, you don't you know, your doctor doesn't really know that much. Don't trust them. Trust your more than that. Don't trust me. <laughs> trust the intuitions that I'm right. going to reveal to you about yourself. Right. So that to me, I don't like there's, you know, but for the academic publications, the uh, the office, the the uh, the, you know, ten tenure and so forth. There's not a lot of daylight between that rhetorical setup and the rhetorical setup of like one taste, uh, yeah. you mm -hmm. know, or 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 Nexium or something like that. Like I'm going to reveal to you the hidden forces within yourself that everyone is trying to hide from you. Right. Um, well, yeah, that's Well, yeah, well and that and to that extent, you know, uh, I think importantly to to point out too, it's it is yes this uh as you're saying this intermediary uh you know uh to in a lot of ways as you're saying tell you to discount conventional wisdom or certain or certain a certain type of expertise. 
but then also is uh, equally invalidating of, again, you know, the expertise of people like people in teachers unions, you know, the teachers who are in teachers unions who were yes. uh, fighting back, like the expertise of ground knowledge who are, you know, seeing people who were seeing throughout the pandemic, people fucking die in their community. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, obviously, you know, completely discounting that, like all of that type of experience. The other thing is that it's very funny to me because I was reading um, I was reading some like Amazon reviews of her first book, oh actually, um, many of which are just hilarious because they're calling it exactly what it is. Some of these are just as are actually just as uh, incisive as um, stuff that we have that we have said on this uh, podcast, actually, which is just like especially like a bunch of people's comments about how um, I guess she's like really she like completely discounts um, and says like really offensive things about miscarriages and things like that. But she also, also says that like bed rest but, is bullshit, but also, weird shit like that. But uh, but also there's a very funny there's like there was one very funny review, for example, that said like literally on one page, I guess she uh, she casts doubt on a study um, she cast doubt on one study in particular, um, for having, you know, too small of a sample size, uh, which is like 114, uh, women were in the, were in this, uh, pregnancy study. And then like a page later, she glowingly refers to this other study that has 54 participants in it. So it's very cherry picking. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's cherry picking on the order of, um, something that's actually very appropriate. Cause I assume that we're not going to get to uh sort of the Emily Oster origin story on this uh on on this recording in particular cuz we're kind of running out of time but you know one thing that we ju- that was just like has not been mentioned is Oster herself was sort of born into this uh freakonomics like small data gathered out of like a couple of relatively arbitrary uh data points because as a child recordings of her talking to herself were the subject of a book called narratives from the crib mm-hmm. which linguists used to basically use the analysis of again a you know sample size of one study size of one Ironic. uh emily oster herself as a basis analyzing her crib narratives as a basis to talk about to like draw broad inferences about early childhood linguistics and how like the self is constructed and how how like language is is developed and 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 built and, and how to determine intelligence through recognizing yeah. a child's development and speech. Yeah. All, all very appropriate stuff uh, for us. But the one thing that I will say about that, I guess, since we won't be getting into it today, is we the death panel is looking for yes. a copy of in 2006. That book Narratives from the Crib was reprinted with a forward by Oster herself. Allegedly and is, reflecting on her experience of having been a childhood research subject. Right. And this uh, 2006 introduction by Oster is suspiciously missing from a lot of the like libraries, bookstores or like whatever, like we've looked for it and it's uh, it, a a lot of it, the traces of it appear to have been relatively wiped. So if you happen to have, if you happen to have the 2006 edition of <laughs> narratives from the crib which is again about with emily, emily oster, oster forward with it will right it will say on the it will say on the cover with a i think it says like uh featuring a forward by emily oster the baby in the crib yes <laughs> literally it says I, I, on the cover if you have this please 
get in touch with us. Uh, we don't necessarily need a physical copy. We will take photographs of it if you want. Like you can you know, read you it send aloud us, to us. Like, send over us the clear phone. photos. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Like, we we want a copy of this. I'm imagining you are going to get Artie a a really ominous phone call tonight. It's like there's some things you just shouldn't shouldn't go down. Some paths you just shouldn't go down. Some trees you just shouldn't bark up, man. Leave it alone. Drop the Oster thing. Drop the Oster thing now. Yeah. Yeah. It's. um, (laughs) There are some questions that should not be answered. Well, we're uh, here at the X-Files. We're going to get to the bottom of Emily Oster. Give up your inquiries, which are completely useless, and consider these words a second warning. We hope for your own good that this will be sufficient. (laughs) Yeah. The O-Files. The O-Files. Welcome to the O-Files. Oh, my God. Um, Well, and and maybe just like as a a final thing that I wanted to share from a Telegraph article from 2013 on the occasion of her first book coming out, where she recounts this little story. So basically, for this test, the baby has to be awake. Oster realizes that the baby is not awake. And so in the book, she writes, quote, I had a long talk with her and indicated that if she didn't wake up, she was going to fail her very first test. The threat of failure is a real motivation. Her, her fetus, like her the fetus's child. Test. Oh my God. Yeah, the fetus was going to fail. <laughs> the threat of failure is a real oh, motivation man. for Oster women. She woke up immediately. No. Oh, man. Oh, boy. This is like, this is some Dickensian stuff. Yeah. Well, we stand a cold hearted economic queen. Well, we hope you've enjoyed that. Yeah. No, that's, this is, this is good. It's always nice to, to dig into some of our favorites. And, um, and as always, if you want to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. This is the free one. So if you want to get access to all of our bonus episodes, become a patron. And uh, we'll leave it there for today. Medicare for all now. I live for drugs. Solidarity forever. It's great. Stay alive another week. It's great. I live for drugs.
Everybody have their calculators? All right, there's going to be a test. <laughs> all right, how many? All right, oh, a train and a cella is carrying Emily Oster. <laughs> <laughs> On the other train is a bunch of uh, children who may or may not be adequately taken care of by their parents. <laughs> oh Do the children need to be in leashes? And can the parents drink wine when they're pregnant? <laughs> no. On one train. It depends on the speed of the train, actually. <laughs> no, no, like the, yeah, the, actually the, from, from that information, what you're trying to divine is how corrupt is the teacher's union? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the end of the word problem. Right, exactly. One train carrying Emily Oster traveling at 80 miles per hour eastbound. One train carrying an entire school full of public school children traveling at 60 miles per hour. How corrupt is the teacher's <laughs> union? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, it depends um, on the IQ of the children. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is the IQ of the children when they re when their trains cross paths? <laughs> Oh shit! We didn't get we didn't get that on our well, end. That's actually, all right. Um, so. yeah, well, whatever. Back.